morning, everybody. As we begin today's uh, message, we have been going over uh, the book of Hebrews, and today and this morning we'll go over Hebrews chapter four, verse fifteen, to chapter five, verse ten. It's just about twelve verses, but it's Hebrews chapter four, verse fifteen, to chapter five, verse ten. And if you have a pew Bible, which you can find in front of you. We just replenished them all uh, the past week or so. You can find it on page 943. Again, it's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 to chapter 5, verse 10. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Around 15 of us came back uh, from Orlando, Florida. We saw Mickey Mouse. No, we didn't see Mickey Mouse at all. Um, It was three days of intensive uh, listening to the Word, studying the Word, being focused on the Word. But it was in Orlando, Florida. This is a conference that I talk about after I come back every year and encourage people to go. And this year, I believe we've had a record number go from our church. About 15 of us went, including Elizabeth. But around 15 of us went. And if you go to this conference, um, people come back and, you know, you start to think, what's so good about this conference? Why this conference? Why make your way all the way to Orlando, Florida? Don't even visit Mickey. You just stay in this conference hall, and then you come back that very weekend to attend your church. And if you, you know, I think the people that went, you can ask them, what's so great about these people? Are they good-looking? And I can say with quite certainty that none of them are good-looking. They're quite old. They're all in their 70s, except for one person. One person is actually good-looking. He was asked to be in the Backstreet Boys, but he became a pastor instead. But uh, 
you know, he would also share about how he would lose his fingers in a wood, woodworking accident. And then R.C. Sproul, who was his mentor, would, he even shared this story this past conference about how he would make fun of him. So um, the pastor, Burke Parsons, t- took over for R.C. Sproul, and he's his uh, successor. And R.C. Sproul at the time would make fun of him, saying, when you give a benediction, it's only like half the benediction because he was missing fingers. Man, that would not fly here, right? But, you know, Burke Parsons is someone that adopted that kind of ministry, that kind of humor, that kind of grace when they talk. And these are people, and I share this because these are humble people that can take a joke, that can even take people making fun of them. Uh, even if it was a horrific woodworking accident, uh, they could make jokes about each other. Because, I don't know if the, the 14 others, you can ask them, but for me... The reason why this conference is so special, and some of you actually watched online, which I, I love because you guys are texting me, you're just texting me flames. So I saw flames all over my text, but it's because these are spiritual giants. When you look at them, you're like, whoa, they're giants. I want to be like them. Why? Because the spiritual giants, excuse me, are like really close to Christ, and that's what you want to be. You want to be close to Christ. And the closer these people are to Christ, you see that what they share, what their experiences are like, but most importantly, their knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, is awesome. And you want to be like, I want to know Christ like that. And so every year I do encourage people to go. Uh, You come back tired like me. My voice is almost all gone already uh, because it's very tiring, but I would say it's worth it. I hope that you can talk to any of these people here that went and I do believe that they have these seminars and Q&As online, and so it's great. Uh, I got to actually take a picture with Esther and Elizabeth with one of the speakers there. And this man is huge. This man is gigantic, and he's good-looking, so I don't know. He, he was an anomaly, uh, but I don't want to name job because I don't want a fanboy up here, but let's just call him Bosham. <laughs> but um, this man is, is awesome. Uh, man of God, but all these people, what they do is, like my man Basham, he would point people to Christ and continue to point people to Christ. So people that you admire in the faith, what do they do? Do they point them, point you guys to themselves, or do they point you to Christ? And I think that's the big difference. Um, and so I, I'm not a conference guy. If you if you know who I am, I'm very introverted. I'd rather just watch online. Why would you go so far? But this is one place that I would recommend. And uh, the more people that goes, uh, the merrier if our whole church went. It would be awesome. Maybe we could just plant roots there. No, um, but it would be great. Um, But I encourage you to watch uh, some of the stuff that is online. And it's, I believe, called the Ligonier Stand Firm Conference of 2023. And you can watch that. And I say this all beginning in this beginning because when we come together and listen to the Word of God, what is it that you're being pointed to is a very, very important question. Because we come in here a lot of times pointing to ourselves. We come in with problems. We come in with issues. We come in with our sufferings. We come in with our burdens. And we sit ourselves down. 
And if I, all I did was point you further to your burdens, then what's the point of coming here? Might as well just go to a therapist. Might as well just go to some other secular means of talking about things. But this is not the time or place. This is a time where through the word of God, we get pointed to someone greater. We get lifted up to someone greater than we are. And this is whom we have read about. And so in this passage, we are shown who Jesus Christ is. He has been called the high priest. And in this section, we're going to learn what that means. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is our high priest? And it's going to go. We've learned from Moses. Jesus is the better Moses. And we went to Joshua. Jesus is the better Joshua. Jesus is greater than all the angels. And now here we have someone else introduced Melchizedek, and you're like, who is this? But before that, we see Aaron. And so you'll see here, Jesus is the greater Aaron. Through Aaron, Jesus is going to come out greater, and we'll see why. But we'll see even a twist where it's not that Aaron was there and Jesus is the greater Aaron. Jesus was even before Aaron. And so we'll see that as we read and continue to go on this passage. And I have three points that we'll go over really quickly. It's suffered, sacrificed, and sanctified, suffered, sacrificed, and sanctified. So suffered in verses 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Because Jesus is high priest, as we are reminded of in verse 14, it's possible that those that are listening Jesus is high priest, okay. But what does that mean to you? Does that do anything for you? Even the Jewish listeners that would be listening to this, the Hebrews that would be listening to this, may think that this implies aloofness, a kind of distant kind of ministry. It's like, oh, you know, he might be this great pastor. He speaks in front of thousands of people, but what does that have to do with me? But this is where... We might say, even though he may be high priest, yeah, I get that. We owe him allegiance. I've learned that. But he still feels far off. And in this next following section and the passage, the author of Hebrews will take time to explain actually what the office of high priest entails and what Jesus has to do with this office. Uh, The word sympathy comes up here. And I mentioned counseling before. So, I'm going to talk about what we in our modern day have been taught, not just those of you that are counselors, but those of you that have taken any kind of sociology or maybe psychology course or just looked up Google, I don't know. Uh, But if you do the Google search, uh, empathy versus sympathy, they'll give you an answer. There's a difference between empathy and sympathy. I remember taking a counseling course, and the professor was up there, And they were explaining there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. And then I turned to my classmate and I said, they mean the same thing. And then they told me to shush. But empathy and sympathy, if you do the Google search, it's all there. You'll have like 50 different hits of the same thing. So you want to be empathetic, meaning you want to put yourself in the other person's shoes. That's empathy. That's how they'll define it. And sympathy is just feeling sorry for the other person. You feel sorry for them, so like, oh, I give you my sympathies. 
But if you're empathetic, what you do is you cry with them. And so that's the difference that you are taught. And how is this defined? Where do they come up with these terms? What does it really mean? And they'll say, oh, actually, the root word of empathy is M, which means in, and sim, which is sin or sim, or S-Y-N or S-Y-M are the same prefixes. That means with. So you can be sorry for someone, that's sympathy. But if you cry with them, that's empathy. That's what you will learn in counseling courses. And they'll explain in pathy or with pathy. And pathy, I've read this one article, means feelings or emotions. Um, that's actually false. So if you've learned that in college or whoever told you that, that's false. Pathy does not mean feelings or emotions, okay? So it's not in someone's emotions or with someone's emotions or in someone's feelings or with someone's feelings. Pathy is from the word pathos. Pathos is where we get the word pathology. Pathology is the study of causes and effects of diseases, okay? So pathos is a bad thing, right? It's suffering. That's where pathos is. That's what pathos means. That's where we get the word passion. Passion is from the word pathos. So when we say it's empathy, sympathy, it means in suffering or with suffering. So is there a difference between empathy and sympathy? And I would say no, there is no real difference. But the reason why I think people, so I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, the reason why people do that is because they want to give this gradation, the scale of how much I can sympathize with someone. So I could say, I feel sorry for you. That's level one of sympathy. I could feel, I could be like, I'm going to call you, text you, make sure you have everything you need. That's level two. I'm going to go over there and hug you and cry with you. That's level three. We'll call level three empathy. Well, that's all subjective. It's random. It doesn't really necessarily mean that. But what's, what's odd, though, is that now we have defined these two terms. Now, I gave you the way the world defines the terms, empathy and sympathy. It's odd that we want empathy. Now, I've told you how the world defines empathy. We as a people, we as a generation, we as a nation, we want empathy in our leaders, okay? We want our nation's leaders to be empathetic, and that's a great thing. Oh, look at him. He empathizes with us. I'm like, well, you don't even know what you're talking about. But anyway, but oh, look at this person. This person empathizes with us. We want leaders to empathize with us. To me, that's odd because the quality of empathy or sympathy was identified in the Old Testament with priests. Not nation leaders. Not juridical leaders. But with priests. And there's a reason why. Why is empathy and sympathy correlated with the priests. This is how, uh, excuse me, the author of Hebrew starts. The double negative that he uses is the forceful assertion that Jesus identifies with those who feel defenseless in their situation because he is sympathetic. That means he suffers along with that's what it means to have sympathy. Sympathy is a great word. It's not a bad word. It's an amazing word to be sympathetic 
with someone or to someone. To sympathize with someone means you suffer along with them. When they suffer, you suffer. That sympathy and this double negative is saying Jesus Christ is a high priest that sympathizes with those that feel defenseless in your situation. But not only that, when you continue to read this verse, he not only sympathizes, says, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. There is this illusion. There is this kind of leading into this understanding that even as he suffers with his people, he has the ability to help. It's not just, I'm going to cry alongside you. I want to be with you. I will suffer alongside you. There is this implication that he also has the ability to help. In this sense, if I'm going to, if I'm going to really nitpick Sympathy is actually a higher word by definition to suffer alongside and with the ability to help. So he, Jesus Christ, the high priest, he experiences suffering and trials. He endures them. He gets this humiliation put on him so he can be empathetic or sympathetic so that he can support his covenant people in their sufferings and temptations, and yet he was without sin. That means in every way that we could possibly suffer and be tempted, he also was, meaning every respect. It doesn't mean he got the exact same temptation. That's foolish. It's not like, oh, I was really tempted to buy a hamburger and not eat it or eat it because I'm fat. And that's not the temptation that we're talking about. But in every respect, meaning every umbrella of sin that would tempt us, Jesus was also tempted. And yet he did not sin, which means something that we should also remember. Temptation itself is not sinful. It's once you give in to that temptation, you are under sin. So you don't want to um, let temptation dance around in your head. You want to fight it, right? And Jesus Christ, he was able to share in the human suffering and yet was without sin. Um, there are people, there are people that will tell you Jesus Christ actually sinned for him to completely be uh, someone that would understand us, be someone that is able to sympathize with us, that means he also must have sinned because that means he went to the depths of this kind of disobedience to sin. So that's why the process of being sympathetic or to sympathize must have meant that Jesus also sinned. This is not true. So if anybody says that it's not true, especially if you continue to read the rest of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 7, verse 27, it says that he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He didn't need to make extra sacrifices for himself, which is what the high priest did. For, uh, chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. He didn't have any sin. And so he is without sin, and yet he is able to sympathize with us because it's concerning something that's very, very important for us. Jesus Christ, in all that he did, was faithful to God. He was faithful to the one that appointed him. That's what it means. It indicates that he has the compassion, but he also has the ability to help. 
because he is without sin. Because he's the high priest that suffered alongside but remained perfect, even though he was tempted in every way we also were. This is the next verse. Because of this, because of verse 15, it goes to verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of grace is the presence of God. Now, this is, this is leading up to, you have to understand verse 15, the throne of grace is the presence of God. It's where God resides because that's where grace emanates from. It emanates from God. So the throne of grace is the presence of God. Now, this is what the significance is. The only one who could ever draw near to the throne of God was the high priest once a year. That was the Old Covenant. That's the Old Testament. The only one who could ever draw near to God to go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest once a year. And the condition that he could even enter once a year was that if his ministry was acceptable to God, and then if it was, then mercy would be dispensed to the rest of the people. That's how God did it. That was how he ordained it. But this is something different. Christ achieved what Israel was never able to experience before. And that's in verse 16. Freedom to draw near to God continually. Not just once a year by the high priest, if he had what it took, but through Christ, those that are in Christ, those that have Christ as their high priest, they have the freedom to draw near to God continually. What that means is that we have immediate access to God. What that also means is that we have the ability to enjoy Him. And that's where grace and boldness meet. We can be bold to enter into God's presence. And so what about this being high priest allows for this connection in verse 15 and 16? And that's where we'll get to the next point, sacrifice, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest actually had many duties, but his main duty, which everything else flowed from, was his ministry on the Day of Atonement, when he offered the sacrifices for the cleansing of sin for all the people in the most holy place. The high priestly class is what we know to be the Aaronic order or the order of Aaron. The Jewish reader would not have missed this and would have even wondered why would you call Jesus Christ the high priest. And so there are several several characteristics mentioned in this verse, in verse 1, for a high priest. Number one, the high priest is appointed. The high priest is made by God. It wasn't a democratic election. It wasn't done by like, you know, you know what? Let's see who is the most charismatic and let's vote him in. The high priest was appointed 
by God. Number two, the high priest was representative of men. That means he was chosen from among men to represent men. The reason why is that the same nature meant that he could plead on their behalf. It wasn't some angel that was a high priest. It wasn't an alien that was a high priest. It wasn't an animal that was a high priest. It was a man chosen from among men. So that same nature meant that he could plead on their behalf. Number three, this appointment, this is all in verse one, is in relation to God. That's what it says. It's in relation to God. That means the high priest then can act on God's behalf. So when God says something and says, do this, or I want you to do this on my behalf, the high priest has that ability. He can act on God's behalf. And number four, he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can exercise the method which God has ordained. So the priest didn't act in a way that he thought was right. You know what? I can do this. I can do that. I think this. I can act on behalf of God. Let me just do it this way. He didn't do it any old way. He was able to do what he did, and he did these things in accordance with the way God has ordained it. And this is why we also worship God in a similar manner. We don't worship God in the way we think is right by our own selves. We're like, I really like it if the music was this certain way. I really like it, Piyuge, if uh, you told a little more jokes or I would really like it if you would dim the lights. Whatever the case is, it's not about what we would really like. It's about what has God ordained in his word for us to worship him. So that's what it meant. Priests didn't just act on behalf of God in what they felt was right. There was a method that has been ordained and they offered gifts and sacrifices for sins as the word of God dictated. Verse 2, he can... He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. This is still talking about the high priest. But in chapter 4, verse 15, the writer stresses the high priest's relationship to the source of human frailty or weakness. That's what we are. This is what brings about transgression and sin because we are weak. That means the high priest can feel the weakness of those that he is meant to represent, those that he has also done on the acts that he has done on God's behalf because he is also human. In the same way, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus is able to feel the weaknesses of others because he was also tested as we are. And that's where this accent is placed on in verse 2. He's able to show compassion because he knows he himself has his own limitations. In chapter 7 of this book, verse 28, For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So in this sense, this quality of being able to relate in someone's frailty and suffering is a positive quality. This is why God has set up high priests, in a sense, to be able to show that there is justifiable displeasure and anger towards sin, 
but there is compassion as well extended to those that have sinned according to error and ignorance, being wayward and not knowing. We see this in Leviticus 4, 2, 13, 22, 27, uh, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 2 to 4. Sins that were committed by accident, sins that you just didn't know. I didn't know that was a sin. And then you will see that this priest will be able to have compassion on these people. Because what does sin do? Even if you didn't know it was a sin, even if you were ignorant that this was a sin, what does sin do? Sin separates you from God. That's what sin is. And when you are separated from God, you are separated from everything that is good about God. And what you do is you incur God's then wrath and punishment. So yeah, you were ignorant. You didn't know. But that doesn't excuse you. Just like you don't know, oh, officer, I didn't know this was the law of the state. It doesn't matter. You still broke the law. He's going to write you a ticket. You're going to have to show up in court. You get a summons. In the same way, when you sin... You go against God, and now you are not in his pleasure, but his displeasure. Now you're not receiving blessing, but his wrath. And so the priest is able to sympathize. He feels sorry. He feels bad because he also understands that frailty that humans go through. Now I'm going to give you a little sidebar here. These are two things that he mentions here. Sin committed through waywardness or ignorance or um, error or ignorance that excludes something. It excludes people that committed sins intentionally. That's a, that's a big statement, okay? I'm not just saying it. It's not Hebrews that just says it. It's actually in Numbers 15, 30 to 31. But the person who does anything with a high hand... In Numbers 15, 30 to 31. So there's a lot of co correlation between numbers and Hebrews. But there was a person who does anything with a high hand. And you can imagine high hand meaning, it's like, get away from me. I'm just going to do what I want. That, that's the high hand kind of imagery that you get. It's a defiant hand, right? But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So when we sin, not only do we incur God's wrath and punishment, but we also receive incredible shame. There's shame that comes with sin. You can be defiant about your sin, but the shame will never go away. That's a guarantee by the word of God. You can deny it all you want. You could be living in sins like... I don't care about that. I don't feel no shame. But there is shame. Otherwise, you wouldn't be so angry. You wouldn't try to deny it so much. You'd just be happy in your sin. But no one's happy in their sin. Why do you think that we have all these ideologies being pushed on us today? Because they can't live by themselves. They're so angry. They need everyone else to sin. They need everyone else to go and capitulate and celebrate. And not just that, but now we have to commiserate. We have to be like, oh, I'm so sad with you. It's, life is so hard that you have to live this way. And we have to do everything that people dictate to us. Because they're not happy. Because shame is real. It's part of the wrath of God. That's why you should be very scared and afraid if you think that you are sinning with a high hand. Like there's sin out there. Then Christians, we repent. We say, whoa, this is a big deal. 
I don't want to do this. Or at least we take a step back. And we're like, wait, should I get some counsel on this? Is this okay to do? Because it says in the word of God that if you sin with eye hand, you are reviling God. That means you are literally cursing him out because you know the law. You know the good character of God. You've received this blessing and you're spitting in his face. Verse 3. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. In verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest in the Old Testament was fallible. He remained fallible. He needed to make provision, meaning he needed to make appropriation, sacrifices, because of his sin. You see this in Leviticus 4, as I mentioned, Leviticus 9 as well. On the Day of Atonement, before he would make this uh, sacrifice for all the people, he needed to make sure he and his immediate household would be okay with God. This is why elders are so important that they have a good household. If their household is not in order, they cannot be an elder. Even the high priest, if their household was not in order, he would die in the Holy of Holies. He was responsible for them. He was someone that had the headship of the household, and he needed to make sure his children and his wife were good. They were in good standing with God. So who's responsible? Otherwise, how can you be responsible for the whole people of God? The same way the elder has that similar call. Uh, I did get challenged by um, something that one of the Q&A sessions, uh, someone in the panel said, where they said, and I forget exactly who it was, but they said, um, children, well, you don't know how good of a parent you are until your children are in your 30s. Then you kind of know if you're a good parent or not. So a lot of, these, a lot of our young elders, we got to watch out. We got to be careful. It's not done yet. They're not out of the house. They're not married. You know, they're not outside of your uh, responsibility yet. And so those are things that I have also been challenged by, as well as um, teaching this church well to do a night service on Sunday. But that's another story. So the high priest was fallible. The high priest was fallible. He remained fallible. He needed to make provision. He needed to make atonement for himself, his immediate household, and then he could do it for the congregation of Israel. If you are not good, you cannot be a teacher. That's in James as well. This is also challenged even by um, the Roman Catholic Church, which is odd to me that they would do this and then they continue to change it. But when the Reformation happened, people said the Pope wasn't perfect. He was fallible. That's not a big thing to say, right? People are fallible. In 1870, they had, a, they had a council, and they declared this doctrine called papal infallibility. And people were like, that, that's a little too hard. So there was something called papal infallibility. is not for the person's whole being, but it's for when they speak ex cathedra. That means when they speak, they, they're going to speak in this infallibleness because they're going to give a doctrine of God. So the, the Pope can do that. For me, that still doesn't make sense, but um, the statement is expressing that what we have in the office, the grandeur of the divine call, the humility that the high priest required because he is fallible, is dependent on what? Who? What does this all point to? It all points to God. 
God is the one that calls. God is the one that sanctifies. God is the one that receives. And God is the one that gives. It's all pointing to God. So when you talk about the high priest, you better see God. If you see the high priest and you see the high priest only, that's not a good high priest. When you see a preacher and you see the preacher only, that's not a good preacher. When you see anybody in the ministry and you see that person but not God, that's not a good minister. And so this is what we are to see. People are fallible, but it's God who appoints, God who holds, God who sanctifies, and God who glorifies. It's God who does all these things. So praise be to God. In our weakness, he would still use us. And guess what? Now that you've learned from verses 1 to 4 what a priest does, guess what Peter calls the people of God? A royal priesthood. We're all called to do what the priest did, which was understand that we are appointed, understand that we do represent people, and we are saying saying things. When we share the gospel, we are sharing the gospel in relation to God. We are acting on God's behalf, and we serve and live out our lives in accordance with his word. We're doing all these things. Final point, sanctified, verse 5 to 10. This may be a more harder section to understand because a lot of people read this and hear the name Melchizedek and have no idea, but that's okay because he goes on to explain Melchizedek for the next few chapters. But verses 5 and 6 says this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the first quote is from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. But Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 has something else to it. It says, I will tell of the decree. Now, what verse 5 or Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 is saying, when you hear God saying, you are my son, today I've begotten you, this doesn't mean that you know Jesus has God as his parent. This is not about a source or parenthood issue. This is a declaration. It's a decree. What does that mean? What does it mean to decree that today I've begotten you? What does it mean to decree that you are my son? He qualifies it in verse 6, but let me tell you, it's a decree that everything is connected from verses 1 through 4. There is a decree, meaning an appointment, Jesus is appointed or decreed as high priest in verse 5. And that's connected most masterfully and brilliantly with verse 6. And verse 6 is a quote from Psalm 110 verse 4. And the author will use this section to connect now the idea of appointment as high priest with Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or Melchizedek, king righteousness, what Melchizedek means the king of righteousness, of Salem, of peace. And so Melchizedek is going to be connected here. And so the primary function of this quotation, though, in this section, is to say that Jesus didn't arrogate priesthood to himself. Jesus didn't just say, I am priest, you listen to me. But it was an office directly called by God. And Jesus manifested the same things that all the Levitical priests needed to do, meaning he was humble, he was able to sympathize, and he's able to do whatever the priest needed to do, all in that perfection. Verse 7 and 8, 9, 10, I'll just finish it. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now I explained a little bit already about what verse 5 and 6 does, and this is what he is saying, the author here. But there are some things that might be confusing that I want to just parse through. Progression of growth. There is a progression of growth in Jesus' life. That means his obedience progressed. He learned obedience. That means as he learned obedience, his suffering also increased. His suffering also increased and it culminated in his death. And this is what we see here alluding to most definitively. Point number one was suffered. Jesus suffered. He suffered for our sins. He not only sympathized, but he put himself in our place, meaning he took on the sins that we ought to have been punished for. And number two, sacrificed. Where was the sacrifice? If the high priest is able to offer sacrifices through an animal, where was the sacrifice Jesus offered? Jesus offered his own body. He was able to sympathize completely with humans. He was able to sympathize completely with us because he was one of us, but he also died in our place. People think all these sacrifices and all these ordinances and all these kind of ceremonies that you see in the Old Testament is, you know, just like this grand thing. It's like, oh, this is really nice. It's symbolizing something. That's the question. What did all that symbolize? You really think that an animal can take away human sin? By killing an animal, do you think that could take away the sin that you committed? Or did it point to something greater? Did it point to something that was about to come? Did it point to an all-sufficient sacrifice done once and for all for the saving of his people? Jesus suffered and he died. And finally it says, he, became, he being made perfect. In verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. God is the one who said, I accept this sacrifice once and for all done. And he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus suffered, he died, he rose again. That's the gospel that we see in the Bible. He was without sin, but he is a priest forever because he took on the task that the order of salvation that is now valid, not just for a year, the high priest had to do it once a year, but that pointed to a salvation that is valid forever. It's for all eternity. That's verse 9. The source of eternal salvation to all who obey him because God designated Jesus Christ as the ultimate high priest. And the order of Melchizedek meant that it wasn't the order of Aaron. It was before Aaron, and Melchizedek was before Aaron, but not just that. So we think that Jesus came down. That's the picture that's initially shown. Jesus came down from Aaron in that high priestly order because that's what the high priest followed, because the high priest was given this order in Leviticus. But when you point back to Melchizedek, which was before Aaron, he is saying Jesus Christ is preeminent above all high priests. All of high priesthood came down from Jesus, meaning all the high priests pointed back to Jesus. 
Jesus is what we point back to, and Jesus is what we point forward to. Jesus is everything. He is beginning and he is end. He is the ultimate order of salvation that we have received. Those that believe in his name, that means those that obey him, receive this source of eternal salvation because Jesus suffered, he died, but he rose again, and those that believe him will also be risen again to eternal life with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.